This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about trade because talks between the U.S. and China, uh, as Charlie mentioned, uh, entering another phase. China's top top trade negotiator did arrive in Washington, uh, meeting with U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer. A couple of thorny issues, though, still out there. Let's find out exactly where we are, what we're hearing uh, out of the White House. Uh, Let's get an update uh, from Sean Donnan. He's senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News. He's joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in the nation's capital. So, Sean, exactly where are we? Who's here? Uh, who's talking? And what are we hearing? So we're in the end game of this thing. But wow. the yeah. big question is, how long is that end game going to last? And it's kind of like uh, playing a game of soccer with a half that never ends, maybe. <laughs> um, uh, we don't know when it's going to end is, is probably more accurate. Uh, there isn't a set time. And, and that's the problem that we have with trade talks normally. Uh, I've been covering these things for a few years. And you always get to that point where you think a deal is going to happen. And then you should probably add another period of time. And it, they, but I always, feel like they, always, s- they always find a way to drag on, and, and, and that's where we are right now. So the best case scenario is this week we get uh, an agreement in principle. The negotiators come out and say, yep, yep, we got most of it. We got the deal. Uh, we got a piece of paper, uh, or 150 pages or so of paper. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Donald Trump and Xi Jinping are going to meet in a few weeks, and they're going to and they're going to close the deal. And um, so that's the best case scenario. But there's these thorny issues out there, which right. is we keep hearing that it's come down to really two things. One is when will the U.S. lift its tariffs? China wants these tariffs to go away. Uh, the U.S. wants China's retaliatory tariffs to go away. But how you do that is essentially this is like the disarmament phase of of, of the trade wars, right? And mm-hmm. it's not clear that Donald Trump uh, wants to totally disarm until he sees the Chinese live up to their end of the bargain. So how you do that is important. I guess the second issue, which is enforcement. How do you enforce this deal? Right. This is going to drag on for a few years. We, I think we need to think about this less like a, a the signing of a treaty and more like the signing of a legal settlement. Uh, that's how someone um, who's well briefed on these things put it to me the other day and said, this is something that's going to go on for a few years. It's kind of like a consent decree uh, whereby uh, from the American perspective, the Chinese are going to have to live up to their commitments to fix these big problems that the U.S. sees on intellectual property, the theft of, of, of U.S. technology, industrial subsidies. But, Sean, uh, this is so where the, the U.S. needs like levers in place, though, right, to make sure exactly. that China – so if you take those levers away at this stage of the game, which is really what China is kind of demanding at this point, you know, then what do you leave yourself with uh, as an enforcer on the part of the U.S.? Yeah, and at the same time, the U.S. has to balance the demands of U.S. business. Mm-hmm. No one in the U.S. business community likes these tariffs. You know, they're making life hard for global supply chains. Uh, businesses are having to shift uh, production. Uh, they also have this uncertainty that's just out there as to how long these tariffs are going to be in place, and they don't like that. Uh, it's really hard to plan. And then you've got the farmers who have been hit by the retaliatory right. tariffs uh, from China. They want all the tariffs to go away as well. So it's, it's you know, there's, there's all of these colliding uh, – 
uh, interests. And that is why when Donald Trump said trade wars are easy to win <laughs> some time ago, yeah. a lot of people who know trade said not so easy. Are we going to get a deal, though, that is reflective of where we are in our relationship with China here in the 21st century? That's a really good question. And I think the, the cop-out that I'm going to give you is that we're not going to know the answer to that until a few years down the line. Mm-hmm. And that is when, these, when we see what China has actually done. I think the big immediate question that we're, that we're going to be uh, faced with is Donald Trump started these trade wars. He mm-hmm. threw out these tariffs. They've been economically disruptive. They have, uh, they have contributed to the slowing in the, growing econ- in the global economy. They've contributed to the slowing in the U.S. economy, according to some academic economists. Right. Are we going to get something that makes that, uh, that cost that's already been paid worthwhile and that's going to come in two forms. One is these big purchases of, of farm products. We're back to soybeans, as we often are in these <laughs> trade negotiations nowadays. Are there enough soybeans that China is going to buy? Uh, is there, are there enough uh, pork products, uh, beef, uh, natural gas, and, and, and so on, to really make it a difference, a meaningful difference in the trade balance between the two countries? And secondly, these questions of of kind of China's behavior and its treatment of foreign investors. Right. Is that going to change? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to see the the, this enormous and complicated relationship being fixed or completely altered by even 150 pages of a deal. I do wonder if we're, you know, missing the forest through the trees kind of thing, because you talk about soybeans and other things, you know, in China, you and I've had this discussion certainly before, China's really thinking about becoming a much bigger player when it comes to high tech. And I do wonder, our Andy Brown um, here at Bloomberg had talked uh, about the importance of, here we have an opportunity to do a trade deal where we look at China maybe a little bit more as a partner and we think about the technologies that are developing that are going to engulf our world. China has the ability to be a much bigger player when it comes to self-driving cars because of their market size, right, and consumer base out there. They're also building infrastructure today where they can put the sensors and use the technology to really make it work. So I do wonder, are we kind of missing the bigger, more important stories here when it comes to trade. Just got about 35 seconds here. Yeah, in 35 seconds, I can do the future of the 21st <laughs> century comedy. But it, look, it, it's, you, you can. You're, abs- you're absolutely right. The, the, and that has always been the question about Donald Trump's trade war. Uh, has he been too focused on 20th, 20th century products, things like steel, 19th century goods like soybeans in many ways, and has been missing the, the, the forest for the trees? Has he been thinking enough about innovation and this kind of innovation innovation rivalry that the U.S. is in with China and how and who is going to win the 21st century. Yeah, great stuff. Hey, listen, thank you so much. Sean Donnan, always getting us up to speed when it comes to trade. That's his thing. He's senior trade and globalization reporter at Bloomberg News, and he's with us from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. And go he did. In fact, uh, he sat down, caught up with uh, Twitter CEO and co-founder Jack Dorsey, who's been uh, pretty outspoken about regulation of the technology industry. Let's get into this with our John Ehrlichman, who caught up with him, anchor of BNN Bloomberg's The Open. John joining us right now from Toronto. So, John, nice to have you here. Lots going on here. Set the scene where you talk with Jack Dorsey, what you wanted to talk about, what he wanted to talk about. Well, he's uh, in the middle of a global tour 
Carol. Um, this is a company that is now 13. It's amazing to think time flies, <laughs> yeah. right? But this is a uh, this uh, Twitter business is a teenager now, I guess. And um, as part of the evolution of these businesses, there's a lot that this company has to do. Um, they've got offices all over the world. So over the next year, Jack Dorsey and other members of the Twitter team are making stops. They're going and they're talking to employees. And that's one of the reasons he was in Toronto. But it's hard not to think about this regulatory environment that we're looking at right now. All the news that's been made on Facebook recently, of course, Mark Zuckerberg just in the last few days making headlines for trying to take the issue head on. Uh, Some wondering if it was a PR stunt or not, but ultimately saying bring on more regulation. So I I did want to ask Dorsey about that. And he was very much happy to talk about it because it's at the at the DNA that's uh, basically a top priority for him right now. Let's listen to something he had to say, and then we can talk a little bit more about what he had to say. Generally, I, I think regulation is, is a good thing. It's a, it's a net positive. And I think our role as a company should be that, uh, that of uh, an educator, um, helping regulators and, and legislators understand what's happening with technology the secular trends that, that we're seeing, that we're aware of, how our system works. And the job of a regulator is to ensure um, protection of the individual and a level playing field. Fascinating. So there's, there's, <laughs> there's some of what he had to say. I yeah. mean, any of these CEOs that are caught in the crosshairs of all this are going to be careful about what they say. They want more regulation, but they don't want a single um, entity that's all obviously overseeing um, all footprints of the internet. I, I, I did get a sense, though, Carol, that he feels like Twitter um, can be a very unhealthy environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's obviously very relevant, uh, maybe more so than ever before, but also all the abuse on the platform, the propaganda. There's a dark side, and that seems to be a top priority for him. So, probably a good time for regulators to be speaking up because it seems like this company is finally ready to listen in a big way. Yeah, exactly. And, 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 you know, it sounds like, and to be involved in the process, correct? I think that's really important. Um, Many people, when we talk about the, like the prospects for the business of a Facebook or a Twitter, will often say uh, the biggest danger is the companies themselves or governments, and mm-hmm. governments changing their view on what should be happening on these platforms and, and how their business models should be built around that. So it's very much in the interest of a Twitter and Jack Dorsey or Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg to, to, to be trying to be a part of the conversation. And I think that's why more and more you've seen them willing to talk about these issues so that it doesn't get more contentious than it already is. And I think for Jack Dorsey as well, I mean, he's just thinking a lot about where this product goes from here. Um, I don't think a lot of people thought Twitter would would end up in this spot, you know, with a stock price that's done quite well and outperformed Snapchat's parent, Snap Inc. And so they got through that. You know, they got through proving Wall Street wrong on where their business was headed. Right. But I do think they have to figure out where things go from here. Hey, I just want to mention just quickly for our listeners, uh, uh, Headline crossing the Bloomberg. Uh, Carl Icahn selling his Lyft stake prior to the IPO. He had about a 2.7% position in the name. The stock, uh, it's right now up about 2.6% as we speak. We know Lyft has been bouncing around. You know, I think, John, just going back to your conversation uh, with Jack Dorsey of Twitter, I do think it's interesting. It comes on a day where you've got 
Facebook data once again showing up in places it shouldn't. And we're talking about Amazon cloud servers. I mean, there needs to be some ultimate responsibility for these folks in terms of all of the information that they have going through their social media platforms. Well, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, the fact that their businesses depend on it. I mean, these Mm -hmm. are advertising businesses. They were not subscription businesses where you pay and your um, data is uh, valuable to, to other advertisers. And, you know, it's funny, like when you compare Facebook and Twitter, you would think that the issues that Twitter and Facebook um, have to deal with are, are a little different because Facebook was all about you, the individual, giving your information in a, you know, in a, in a protected environment. And of course, Facebook got in a lot of hot water because, well, what, what exactly are they sharing and where are they sharing it and what that exposed you to as a user versus Twitter, which really was, you know, anybody create a, um, a, a, mm-hmm. an account right. um, and uh, a lot more fast and loose, let's say, which because their advertising business was right. never as robust as Facebook, maybe it didn't get to that same extent. But got it. The, the issues on, on the platform are different, too. All right, John. Thanks so much. John Ehrlichman uh, joining us from Toronto. And you can certainly watch and listen to the entire interview. Just go to Bloomberg.com. Yeah, that's kind of what uh, shares uh, and investors, really, in Wells Fargo want to know. Where are we going? Because Wells Fargo, they need a CEO and the stock needs one fast. Shares of the big bank are the worst performer among the biggest U.S. banks since news of the departure of its CEO, Tim Sloan, just announced last week. Let's get into this with our Hannah Levitt, uh, finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She is back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. Man, I, I kidded with you. All right, they kind of wanted him to go. <laughs> they said they wanted, it's felt like, right, investors, mm-hmm. we needed a change, a new guy in place. They got that, and now they're not happy. Yeah, so hey, Carol, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's funny, The right after the announcement, um, and after hours trading last Thursday, the right? stock, Wells Fargo stock went up uh, more than three percent, mm-hmm. and it was like, "Yay! You, yeah. Okay, you're listening. We need a change." <laughs> exactly, and now it's still down. Uh, I checked a few minutes ago; it's still a little bit down since the announcement, and it's been, like you said, the worst performer among its peers uh, since the announcement, and also this year. Yeah. So, okay. So investors are basically saying, you know, it's funny. Uh, Business Week magazine, um, this past issue, their strategy section is all about what's going on with CEOs and how they've got to hit the ground running. Like, Mm -hmm. investors just don't have patience anymore. You've got to go in and you've got to make changes. And if you don't do it quickly, I mean, look at GE. Not everything's apples to apples. But, I mean, just a lot of companies that CEOs aren't given a lot of time. Mm -hmm. Tim Sloan was in the seat for a while, Mm -hmm. right? Not new to Wells Fargo. Understood this company. And even though he wasn't head of the company when those fake accounts were created, mm-hmm. other scandals kept ha- happening, yeah. right, under his reign. Yeah, so the thing, the thing with Wells Fargo and Tim Sloan is that Tim Sloan rose to the top position uh, two and a half years ago yeah. when his predecessor, John Stumpf, was ousted over the fake account scandal. So Tim Sloan is a three-decade veteran of Wells Fargo himself. So it, it, it part of the culture, some yes, might say. It raised eyebrows um, with regulators. You know, Elizabeth Warren has been a very mm-hmm. loud critic of Sloan atop Wells Fargo, um, and, and during his tenure, more issues ca- came out, and they were they were past issues for the most part. You know, things that were being discovered that had happened in the past. But, yeah, he just couldn't seem to shake that. All right. So, okay. So, finally, 
is gone, right? But investors are like, folks, we need somebody, you know, running this shop. I mean, this is a big company mm-hmm. and a yeah. lot of moving parts. It is the fourth biggest bank in the U.S. So, okay. So how quickly, I mean, how patient are investors going to be at this point? That's a great question. Uh, clearly, as we're seeing with the stock down, they're not feeling that patient at this exact moment. But yeah, I mean, so they have their general counsel in place, and mm-hmm. he seems to have confidence of the board and of regulators, and, and he'll be able to, to take the helm. And he's an outsider. He he joined Wells Fargo a couple of years ago, so he's not – the same criticism of Sloan can't be applied to him. Because so, he is an outsider. Yeah. So he'll be running uh, the bank, and then the board has undertaken this search. So the, the search committee met for the first time on Friday, last okay. Friday after Sloan's announcement on Thursday, and – as of yesterday afternoon, they had not f- had formal talks with any candidate yet or even hired a recruiting firm. Well, and what's interesting is, I mean, you've been talking to the analyst community, mm-hmm. right? They're pretty frustrated, too. Yeah, yeah. I think, what are you hearing uh, from those guys as you were you know, reporting on this story? What kind of things were you hearing yeah, from analysts? Yeah, that's a great question. So a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's just question marks. Mm-hmm. Uh, just what, what should we expect? Where are we going to go from here? And even on the call last week with Wells executives and with the chair of the board with the CFO and with Sloan himself and then with Alan Parker, who's now the interim CEO, John Shrewsbury said he backtracked on some expense guidance for next year saying we're good through this year, but <laughs> I'm going to let let the next CEO dictate the next expense guidance. So I think that's, you know, for analysts who are making models based on the, this guidance, now they're just waiting for... The, the new updated guidance when it comes. Well, Jason and I have been talking about this when the news broke last week and we're like, okay, now who wants to step into it? And I was mm-hmm. kind of making the argument, this is a great opportunity for mm-hmm. someone to kind of, this could be a career-making position, yeah. right? Because you step into it, you get Wells Fargo back on track and yeah. you can kind of write your own ticket. At the same time, I think Jason was making the point of, okay, but you step in and you've got, wait, where is it? How many? Um, 14 God. consent orders. Thank you. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of things that anybody mm-hmm. who steps into this seat is going to have to deal with from day one. Yes, definitely. High, high risk, high reward, uh, some might say. But yeah, I mean, I think there's the opportunity to be the one who, who really turns Wells Fargo around and gets it, you know, out of regulatory and political crosshairs. And then on the flip side, you know, there, it, it is a huge bank. There's a lot to do. Right, right. And there's restrictions on Wells Fargo's capital growth. I mean, there's a lot of things. So what kind of individual are the analyst or the investment community saying, this is what we need at Wells Fargo right now? Yeah, so that's, you know, there have been a lot of of opinions and a lot of names thrown out. But, I mean, I think just looking at some of the candidates that I've heard are, you know, at the top of wish lists or most qualified are the people at – peer banks such as you know JP Morgan Bank of America Citigroup who have who've dealt with this kind of size and scale of a consumer banking operation um, the other other people are retired uh, execs who who have run big banks and now you know aren't doing anything or yeah. aren't in the banking industry. And it's hard, right? There's so much under the spotlight, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, those 14 outstanding consent orders, business restrictions related to Wells Fargo's need, needs to improve rating under the Community Reinvestment Act and Mm -hmm. heightening legal expenses tied to all of these scandals. I mean, settlements and just all this stuff that has to be dealt with. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's a, you know, risk reward for somebody who wants to take (laughs) it on. Um, Fascinating to watch kind of the evolution of Wells Fargo. And right now they're hunting for a CEO. 
Hannah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Hannah Levitt, she's our finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining me on this Wednesday in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Just taking a look at Wells Fargo. Uh, The stock in today's session just up about 1.2%. But as Hannah mentioned, we've certainly seen some pressure after initial uh, pop higher on that news of uh, the CEO's ouster last week. When was the last time you heard the Spin Doctors? Come that on. so great. This is a throwback. I oh love my Paul God. He's our producer. He just picks the I feel like there should music. be a keg nearby. I feel like we should go out in the quad and do this interview. I'm Please. just saying. Impressive. Can we have class outside? <laughs> Please. It looks great out there. So that you're hearing, Sarah Ponzek. Uh, she wrote the story. I'm convinced she never sleeps because, man, she is one busy individual. She's on radio. She's on TV. She's writing stories. She's got one about active fund managers. Wah, wah, wah. Just can't get a break. Uh, she's our cross-asset reporter at Bloomberg News, and she's next to me in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. These guys, man, just when they thought right after the sell-off in right. December, thought, okay, our time has come. It's pretty unbelievable how quickly we saw this change because it was just at the end of February, right before March started, that one of my colleagues put out a story saying that active managers, 53% were actually beating their benchmarks. We did that story. Unbelievable. And it would have been the best quarter or on pace for the best year in a decade in the entire era of this bull market, of this cycle. Well, March comes, and alluding to the song that just played, March was completely kryptonite for these active managers <laughs> because it just turned them on their heads, and that beat rate dropped to 36%, which is now the worst since 2016. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, wah, wah, wah. It's exactly so, right. So one of the lines I love in your story, Sarah, is you say, in a stock picker's market, the issue has been the stock picks. <laughs> so they, they just... they. Chose wrong. Love that. I mean, what's what's the deal? What did they miss? Well, what's so ironic is that heading into this year, so many active managers were saying, "Now's the time. Now is a stock picker's market because we had the meltdown in December. So now we can really figure out what's going on." And correlations in the stock market have come down. Not everything is moving together, but March was very much a different environment than the first two months of the year, especially after the Fed turned even more dovish. So at the end of it, you saw high growth companies, especially tech, the best performing sector. You saw real estate up there. And real estate just tends to be one of the most unloved areas, at least right now by active managers. Tech too, Bank of America actually had some data heading into March showing that Active managers had cut their exposure to tech to the lowest amount in three years. So that so wasn't... they gotten really defensive. Right. So they were turning a little bit more defensive. Mm. Um, and the problem was that where they were turning defensive was healthcare. And healthcare has been lagging all year long. It was last year's best. Um, yeah. But it's been lagging all year long. And it was the third worst again in March. So take a look. If you look at the major industry groups in the S&P, right, Sarah, healthcare is at the bottom of the pack, 5.6%. It's mm-hmm. up. But you take a look at information and technology up 22%. Industrials are up 18%. Consumer discretionary up more than 17%. That's what's leading this way higher. And you also look at the divergence that we saw just in March because a lot of the big gains Mm -hmm. that we have seen this year, they were tempered in March. However, we still saw very large divergences. So tech in March was up about 4.8%. However, you look at industrials, which is also one of the most loved areas by active managers, it was down more than 1.2%. So you can also look at it this way. Goldman Sachs has these custom basket they make. They're really interesting. And one holds the most loved stocks and one holds the most unloved stocks. Well, what you can see here is 
The pain is really coming from what they didn't own because the basket of the most unloved stocks was up 3% in March, while the most loved ones didn't see much of anything. Ugh. You know, the other thing I find interesting about the timing of this story is, especially this week, Sarah, is this idea that you have BlackRock doing this massive reorg mm-hmm. to essentially say, look, you know, passive, not doing so well. We need to get, be a more uh, active manager. I know that this is this is a blip, but the timing is is sort of funny given how much, you know, they continue, they could continue to make uh, on the passive side, right? No, you're right. But the timing is funny because at least from a product standpoint, it feels like the passive industry is just so overdone now. There is something for everything. So if you can add value in the active space where many of these managers do and BlackRock being one of them coming out this week with the shuffle, they're saying that they can do more there. The problem is that if you keep seeing underperformance, Jeffrey's data shows that this would be the 12th straight year of underperformance, Amazing. then when does that narrative actually shift back to the idea that active managers are going to be there when you need them? And this was their time to shine because after December, there was a sense that people were going back to buying individual stocks, not right. buying ETFs. Um, but seems like they blew it. Well, we've talked so much about those big macro forces, especially quantitative easing, you know, that really has changed the environment for investors. What I love, though, is we've talked so much about factor investing and focusing on different factors. And what one individual in your story talks about, I think, over at Evercore, or I'm not sure if it's from Evercore. He's from Evercore. Yeah, but says you should really look at the macro story, the yield curve, and those big macro stories. Right. Well, so Dennis Dubosher over at Evercore, what he was saying was that right now, especially if you're a factor style investor, you have to be paying attention to the macro because mm-hmm. right now you are seeing oil prices. You are seeing the yield curve really weigh and have an effect on each of these different styles, whether it is growth, value, momentum, etc. And another interesting point he made was that everything flipped again in March. It's a great story. It's among our most read, Jason. This yeah, is a killer. Thanks. It is definitely uh, trending high on the chart. Sarah Ponzak, what a rock star. She as doesn't Carol sleep. Said. She, she sleeps she, sometimes. She's, no, she's she may be a vampire. We're not sure. It's cool. Like, you do you, Sarah Ponzak. Uh, but it really is a great story and very timely, as we said, with all the shuffling going on on Wall Street right now. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. So Jason, our next guest says while he and his team have participated in the stock rally this year, they've been a bit more conservative in positioning, wondering if he has any regrets over that. Let's get to the drive to the close. Walter Todd is president and chief investment officer over at Greenwood Capital Associates. He joins us on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. Hey, Walter, nice to have you back uh, with Jason and myself. Tell us a little bit about your uh, conservative or a bit more conservative positioning. What does that mean? And uh, do you have any regrets over it? Yeah. Well, glad to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. yeah what I meant by that uh, is really just from a sector standpoint, we were, you know, we weren't necessarily surprised that the market rebounded from very oversold levels in the fourth quarter, especially with the change of heart at the Fed. But we were a bit surprised you know, directionally how long it lasted in one direction without really a significant pullback. And then the makeup of the sector performance was you know, certainly very cyclical, which was 
again, a little bit surprising given how we started out the quarter with the Apple, you know, warning mm-hmm. in the second day of trading uh, this year. So from our vantage point, we participated because we have some cyclical exposure in technology and industrials and so forth. But at the same time, we held some cash. We had some positioning in other sectors like healthcare and consumer staples that you know did well, did okay, but not as well as some of those cyclical sectors. So hindsight's twenty twenty. We we're comfortable with where we're positioned right now, um, especially given the market kind of at these difficult technical levels that we're seeing right now. So let's talk a little bit more about um, those technical levels because I do think you know we have these constant ongoing conversations here about you know who should we pay the most attention to? Is it what we get from the Fed uh, in terms of what they say they're going to do? And it looks like they're on hold for a while. Should it be, you know, that temporary inversion or short-term inversion of the yield curve? Is that what's the most important? Is it some of these big macro issues that are out there uh, concerning U.S. and, you know, China trade and so on? Is it corporate earnings projection? So I'm curious, you know, what you kind of hold on to. Yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you got to consider all of those factors. I mean, when you think about what's driven the market so far this year, it is largely, we think, that shift that the Fed undertook early in January and kind of got out of the way. So that provided a, kind of the green light for you know investors to come in and, and buy, and they really haven't stopped you know since that January 4th announcement by the Fed. At the same time, we know that earnings have been revised down. We know that economic growth you know has slowed, although we've gotten some maybe incrementally better data here recently. So um, I think at some point, fundamentals have to catch up with price action um, and, and validate that. And you mentioned kind of the disconnect between you know interest rates and stocks right now, and that's a little bit of a of a yellow flag to us. Not necessarily the you know quick inversion that we got. I think there's explanations for why that occurred, but just the fact that interest rates are as low as they are and stocks are as high as they are. That's a you know that that gap or that disconnect has to close in some manner, either higher rates or lower stock prices or maybe a combination of the two. So that's one of those things that's out there that, you know, again, is a little bit of, of, a, mm. of a concern for us. So um, forgive us. I think we're having a little bit of technical problems uh, pulling Jason in from the West Coast here. Um, so and then in this environment, Walter, what would you suggest investors do at this point in terms of strategy? Because it does feel like, I don't know, my personal view just from some of the conversations we're having and just kind of how uh, I feel like everybody's kind of wa- reining in their expectations for the second half that we could be potentially surprised by things coming in better than expected. Who, know- who knows? But I'm just curious how you position yourself right now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a great point. I mean, if you look at one of the you know, times in the past that we've kind of looked at as maybe a, a guide for, for what we see going forward, one potential you know, path is 1998, which was, you know, the market continued to scream higher after a quick inversion that summer after the the Asian financial crisis. And so that could happen. You could have a continued melt-up uh, in the market. But um, you know, fr- from our vantage point, we think it's prudent to, to, to be a little more cautious right now, to have some cash on the sidelines, to take advantage of a pullback uh, should we get it. And, and you know, this earnings season is going to be critically important because this is kind of where the rubber meets the road from the standpoint of the expectations that are built into this back half recovery that we're, that we're talking about and the market's kind of reflecting. And are we going to actually start to see that? Because we haven't really seen that yet in the earnings reports we've gotten uh, early, you know, this year. And so we'll, when we start this in another week or so, that's going to be really interesting to see what companies say and what they're seeing on the ground. 
And Walter, uh, hopefully you can uh, hear me now. You know, yeah. I'm all the way out in San Francisco. I think it's my southern accent. You know, they're like, we can't have two southerners <laughs> talking to each other. It's against the rules. That's exactly. Um, so, you know, policy risk here. You know, one of the things you noted to us is USMCA. This came up in a conversation we were having earlier. Carol likes to call it UMSCA, but I'm not <laughs> sure that's catching on. But, <laughs> no. um, what you know, how much does that play into, th- you know, that specific policy or general, you know, debt ceiling, you know, all these things that still are uh, out there. Yeah, that, that, that those are still unknowns. And, and you know, the, the market got really concerned in the fourth quarter about policy risk around trade, et cetera. And at, to this point, they're kind of ignoring some of these lingering things that are out there. You know, just today, we got another threat to close the southern border. You know, Mexico is our second largest trading partner. We do $1.5 in trade with them a day. You know, that would be pretty significant crimp on growth uh, to the U.S. were that to happen. And then you mentioned the debt ceiling. So I, I still feel like there's some things on the horizon that could provide bumps in the road uh, for the market, which, again, is largely ignoring that at this point. But at some point, it comes into view. Another reason to maybe have, again, a little bit of a a cushion, a little cash on the sidelines uh, as well. I do feel also that, you know, we all made such a big deal of the inverted yield curve and, you know, it was fleeting, uh, to say the least. I mean, is that a warning signal or is that just like, yeah, that happened, but we're going to move on? Yeah, I think our perspective on that is that um, you can't just outright dismiss it. I mean, you can say that you know, foreign rates are anchoring the back end, and therefore that's why we, we inverted. So I don't think you can dismiss it outright, but I do think the fact that it happened just over a couple of days for a couple of basis points really is not definitive for us. Again, I go back to 1998 when this happened. When you look at 2007, it was really significant for a long period of time, and actually the whole curve inverted. So you had uh, two-year, three-month, higher than 30-year rates at, at one point in 2007. We're not anywhere close to that. So I don't, we're not that concerned. At the same time, I don't want to just ignore it. I do right. want to be mindful of it. All right, Walter Todd, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Chief Investment Officer at Greenwood Capital Associates. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.